It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. On Commons People this week, Brexit is far from done. The fact is, the fact is that the war is over. We have won! Number 10 is at war with the media. Because it's part of a bigger Trumpian strategy, I think, to, uh, uh, to, to cow. And are the Tories really the party of the North? And time and time again, many of my voters would say that they were voting Labour, but they had to hold their nose to do it. And welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh, and joining me this week is Paul War. Hi, Arj. Hey, Paul. We've also got Rachel Wimar. Hello. Hi, and we've got the director of the UK in a Changing Europe think tank, Anna Menon. Hi, Arj. Hi, how are you? Very well, thank you. Good. I'm admiring your uh, facilities. <laughs> <laughs> well, Brexit has finally happened, and Britain and the EU have wasted no time setting out tough opening positions for the upcoming trade negotiations. If nothing else, it was a reminder that Brexit is far from done and that more argument and impasse awaits. Boris Johnson says the UK wants a Canada-style deal but will walk away from talks if the EU is unwilling to agree. Here he is. Well, folks, I hope you got the message by now. We've made a choice. We want a comprehensive free trade agreement similar to Canada's. But in the unlikely event that we do not succeed, then our trade will have to be based on our existing withdrawal agreement with the EU. And let's be clear, the choice is emphatically not deal or no deal. We have a deal. We've done it. And it did indeed turn out, as I correctly prophesied, to be oven ready. The question is whether we agree a trading relationship with the EU comparable to Canada's or more like Australia's. Paul, you were at Johnson's big speech. What does it mean? Okay. It was a classic Boris Johnson event. You know, it was, it, it, the surroundings were amazing. It was the Painted Hall, which is Britain's equivalent of the Sistine Chapel, we're told. It's an incredible building. Um, yet, at the same time, being in this incredible building, and he was looking up to the heavens and looking up to this sort of uh, fresco, um, the TV crews weren't allowed to look up at the fresco because there wasn't enough, and we can come on to this, about how bad they are at the media, number 10. <laughs> They've got this great opportunity. You could have shown it and shown him, but they allowed one camera, so... It just goes to show the sort of weird approach we've got at the moment. No, but the real thing about Monday was that it was very broad brush. I mean, Anand will know all this stuff, but basically it was it was big, bold colours about what post-Brexit Britain was going to look like. And it was, you know, there was classic Boris touches. There was the poetry, there was the flamboyance, there was a sort of big picture, but there was very little detail. I mean, and even in the written ministerial statement that came out afterwards, as we know, there was a tiny, tiny amount of detail there. Um, I mean, there was a quote, uh, just classic Boris. He quotes Tennyson, the vessel puffs her sail, the wind sits at the mast, we're embarked now on a great voyage. And th that's all very well, you know. A lot of Brexiteers will say that's great, it's stirring stuff, you know, buccaneering Britain. And his near-cutty sar 
Park and he's doing it in Greenwich and the original maritime history. And, you know, this was the centre of the universe for a long, long time. What he fa failed to say was that was done at the, often at the barrel of a gun. Uh, let's be honest, yeah. through the empire, mm -hmm. which we no longer have. Um, and also, we're now a small player, not a big player, or we need a medium-sized player. And all that stuff is just brushed aside almost as detail and irrelevant. All we wanted was that big picture of him saying, look, I've got a, an optimistic vision for Britain. And what did you make of it? He talked about a choice between a Canada-style and an Australia-style relationship with the EU. Yeah, I mean... I'll get on to that. I mean, the other thing I'd say, just to start with, is it was classic Boris in the sense that the business groups were, were excluded. Yep. Uh, which was, again, just pure style, isn't it? Because I imagine they could have watched it on telly if they wanted. I mean, they, they would have seen the speech. Yeah. But, uh, just as a sort of yeah. gesture. Oh, yeah. It was, a, you know, quite a striking one. But, yes, so he, was, he, he didn't say much about post-Brexit Britain, actually. I expected the speech to be on that, the brave new future. But one of the interesting things about this government is it's totally given up any attempt to say that Brexit is a load of opportunities for us. And from the manifesto onwards, it has been, here are a series of challenges that Brexit poses. Don't worry, we'll be fine. So it's been a big change in approach in that sense. The very little, you know, if you say to them, so what are the opportunities? I don't know if you saw that video that went... Uh, uh, the, uh, it was a transcript with uh, Liz Truss being asked, so what are the opportunities, and not managing to come out with any, apart from saying there are lots. That's exactly that, it. He says there are lots, but without saying what they are. Yeah, yeah that's exactly. That's what Monday's speech was. Now, yeah. Canada and Australia, firstly, there isn't an Australian deal. I mean, the Australian thing is so silly, you can, almost, you, you can hardly believe it's being talked about. Australia don't like where they are with the European Union, so they're negotiating a trade deal with the European Union. So to hold up the Australian situation as an example of where we want to go to is, is bizarre. And, but it, it, it's fun, because if you watch trade experts talking about it, they go puce and start shaking. <laughs> so in that sense, you know, Mark Lowe, David Hennig, it's, it's just great entertainment value, but actually no analytical value whatsoever. Canada's interesting because they... Canada means a thin deal... But this is where geography hits us. And one of the sort of projects of the Brexiters, particularly in Liam Fox, was to say geography no longer matters when it comes to trade. Well, it does. And as far as Brussels is concerned, it matters a lot. And what Brussels are saying is Canada have got that deal because they're miles away and they're quite a small economy. You're very, very close and you're a massive economy, so you will not get the same terms as Canada because we want to protect ourselves against your access to our market. By, And that's where this whole level playing field thing comes in. You have to abide by certain rules if you want to yeah, trade Yeah, which with us. Johnson doesn't want to do. Is there room for compromise? Well, there is a distinction between the kind of product standards that regulate the single market and level playing field conditions, which actually, again, going back to the Tory manifesto, all that says is we want to be able to have higher standards than the European Union. So there might be a way, depending on the mechanism and the language, whereby the Tories sign up to this and come back claiming a win because this allows us to, be, to have better regulations than the European Union. Let me say in parentheses the irony of this from the party that first brought us Euroscepticism based on the fact that the EU regulates too much and we want to free ourselves from it, to ending in a position where our big ask is that we can regulate ourselves more than the European Union <laughs> does because we want higher standards is, you know, there are lots of ironies <laughs> floating around. Uh, so it is possible we'll sign up to level playing field, I would say, but if we don't, it's another deal breaker. And is there going to be a big argument about fish? Yes, there will be another <laughs> argument about fish because... Fish, fishing is totally unimportant to our economies, but very important politically. In fact, years ago, sort of early 2000s, we did an event where we had all the British 
ambassadors to the EU there had ever been round a table talking about their experiences. And the guy who was our first ambassador said, I remember when we, we were about to sign the deal to enter and I was taken to a room in Brussels by the Tory minister and we stayed up literally all night with a map of the UK looking at the coastal constituencies and figuring out what it meant for the Tory vote for us to be joining the common fisheries policy. Wow. So there at the beginning, there at the end, wow. fish are going to matter, even though economically it makes no sense. Yeah, and Rachel, you were in Brussels as our EU membership wound down yes. last week. How was that? It was, depending on who you spoke to, it was like a funeral or like a, a goodbye party. It was <laughs> kind of either one or the other. Um, I was there for kind of like the final debate when they finally voted on the, um, the Brexit deal and ratified the whole thing um, with a whole big old lang syne or, and Nigel Farage waving the, the Union Jacks around. Um, I think during the debate, one of the most interesting things was from Guy Verhofstadt. And he kind of said uh, Brexit started the day the EU started giving the UK concessions. So I wonder well, how much unity you'll see around um, whatever future trade deal we start to negotiate now. Yeah, are the EU taking too tough an opening stance? Do they risk this ending in disaster, do you think? Uh, yes. I mean, why would you risk the future of financial services for fish? So, yeah, in all sorts of areas, they're taking too tough a stance. We've got to remember several things. One, they've got politics, too. Um, fish matters for politics there. The Spanish will raise Gibraltar because the Spanish prime minister is in a weak position, and actually Gibraltar's a win. You can say, I'm standing up for the Spanish rights over Gibraltar. It's good politically. It might scupper the talks. More broadly, I think the European Union hasn't focused enough on outcomes, but has focused on a tremendous amount on process. And I think, actually, if you talk... I was talking to someone in Brussels last week, and they said to me, the negotiations have been a triumph because EU unity has been maintained, OK? And actually, there is more at stake here than EU unity. EU unity might be important, but the relationship with Britain is important because, you know, we're a big country, we're a big trading partner, we're a very important security collaborator, and we're living in a time when Trump seems to be intent on unpicking the Western alliance, and you really don't want more of those threads being tugged at now. Yeah, but I think that's a really good point you made because that is what the European view is, unity yeah. above everything. Yeah. And you can understand why. It's Merkel's view all the way along, you know. We've obviously, they've, from their point of view, we've given up our sovereignty, we've pooled our sovereignty for a very good reason, which is you've got to be stronger together as a group. And, you know, the Germans don't ever want that undermined. We saw that throughout, throughout all the history of the EU the last few years. And I think the problem is that Brits tend to think, oh, well, yeah, we can park that. But actually, it's what drives them all. It is, but if you go to the question about whether it should, I don't think they're as weak as they think they are. I don't think their unity is as brittle as they seem to think. I don't think they are queuing up to emulate us. Mm. I think there are very, very good reasons why no-one is going to try and do right. what we've done. Yeah. I mean, you know, think of it. I mean, A, they've watched us do it and realise it's hard. B, for most of them, it would involve recreating a new currency at the same time. So imagine what a nightmare that would be. Yeah. Uh, so I think, actually... They could have tolerated a bit more divergence than they'd been willing to. Uh, and maybe because of that ended up in a slightly different place. There's no guarantee would have ended up in a slightly different place. It feels to me, doesn't it feel to you that we, we are, I mean, I wrote about this earlier in the week, that we are just replaying last year. Yeah. Because, you know, both sides will start off talking tough. Both sides will find a way of selling the eventual deal as a triumph for them. And that's what politics and diplomacy is about. And that come, come November... I or even October, we'll have the outlines of a deal that both sides will say is a win. And, you know, there's a mutual interest at the end of the day. That's the only thing that drives 
real change is mutual interest. There is a mutual interest. I'm not 100% convinced we'll get a deal. I think it's pretty much 50-50. you think? Because I think fish will come up. I think level playing field's an issue. I think there are all sorts of things that we can trip over. I think this government has basically factored in an economic hit from Brexit that thinks it can see it off either by the fact that it will be more gradual than people think, so harder to spot, or because they're going to make up for it with you know borrowing and investment. Uh, I think on the EU side, actually, one of the in incentives at play is this. What Boris Johnson is asking for is something quite thin. And whilst the gap between what he's asking for and no deal is significant, it's not huge. So actually, one logic on the EU side is, well, if that's all they want, if we compromise, we might as well not compromise, because yeah. actually the win isn't worth the compromise. No, I can get that. And I think that's the problem for both sides, actually, is just how much the compromisers in both camps are going to yeah. survive the whole process. I mean, it's, you know... You can see already this talk about this Australia deal. The only reason they talk about Australia is because it's a, a, a euphemism for no deal that doesn't say no deal. Yeah, uh, and people like the Australians. Yeah, style we love the Australians. They're great, system. aren't they? Yeah, it's you know. sunny there. <laughs> Jill, Jill Rutter has got to think about this. That basically this is how politics is now discussed. You pick any Commonwealth yeah. country, you hyphenate style, yeah, exactly. and then you have a noun. <laughs> but you can turn that around, can't you? I mean, you wouldn't want Indian-style bureaucracy. No. For instance. <laughs> but Australian-style trade deal conjures up images of well, smoke, I suppose. But in better, in happier times. <laughs> you know, sunshine, uh, barbecues. Exactly. <laughs> well, yeah. well, Johnson's speech was somewhat overshadowed on the day as lobby journalists were forced to walk out of a Downing Street briefing en masse in protest at Number 10's attempts to exclude certain outlets from a briefing with the PM's chief negotiator, David Frost. Paul, you were there and later went on TV to defend us. Well done. Uh, as Tory MPs struggled to kind of justify the treatment that we received. Let's have a look. All governments. No, well, that's not my understanding. Mark, I've, I think I've this worked in this business for a long time. Deep. I've been in those meetings. You've never been in a lobby briefing, have you? Not as a, no, not you as haven't. a journalist. And no. I can tell you that was the very first time that we were shorted in, sorted into sheep and goats when it comes to a, a technical briefing by a civil servant. Now, admittedly, he's now a special advisor. Yes, but, but that more, was importantly, the... more important than that was the Huawei briefing the previous week, which was by intelligence officials mm. and senior civil servants who were paid for by everybody's taxpayers' mm. money and selected people were invited to that. That's unacceptable. You cannot defend that, can you? Well, I, I'm not. I, I don't know the detail of that. I wasn't involved with that last week. But the, the row that we're having this week, no, I, well, this I, is I think just I was as important. Researched more. it, and I think it was a, it was a political briefing by a special advisor. And I, I think, frankly, it's a bit of a storm in a teacup. Really. Right. I mean, uh, Paul, what's going on here, and why does it matter? Well, on one level, the great British public will think, well, what is this? This is all a storm in a teacup. Who cares? A few journalists getting in a bit of a tears about something. And that's the, exactly the approach the government wants it, wants it to be portrayed as. So it's a storm in a teacup, it's journalist egos, all this stuff. Which, you know, of course there's journalist egos involved whenever there's any interaction with anything. But it's much more important than that. The reason, it's the first time ever you've, you've had significant outlets, BBC, ITV... The political editors all saying at the same time, we're not putting up with this, we're all going to walk out. We'd rather not have a briefing than you do it on a selective basis. That's a first. And they don't do that lightly. They do it because there's a really fundamental principle, which is, you know, if you're in that in, in crowd at some point, you'll soon be out of it at some point later. Um, and they can pick people off. And it's this idea of dividing and ruling. Now, obviously, I lived through Campbell's reign. And, you know, they, of course, they were vicious when it came to Tory outlets and, and the briefing. And Mandelson would ring people's editors up and say, you need to fire that guy. I and mean, it was appalling. But it wasn't 
in the same scale, a, a new different category where you use civil servants, as we uh, explained in that, that clip, to, to sort of brief journalists on a different basis. You know, civil servants are paid by everybody. Alistair Campbell and his political flunkies are a different issue. Um, but I think now we can, I think they've seen a bit of the light. You've seen already that the war with the media is beginning, they're rowing back from it. You saw Nicky Morgan this morning on Today programme, a pre-recorded interview saying, I've no problem with the Today programme. You see them slowly but surely backing off things about the briefings and hopefully we'll get there because it's in their interest. Don't forget, on Brexit night, there's this great stat, which is that Boris Johnson's very homemade video of his clip, of his words at 11 o'clock on Brexit night, went out to 1.2 million people on Twitter. And yet the TV programme's got an audience of 8 million yeah. of ITV and BBC that night. Um, it's a no-brainer. If your job is communications, you want a bigger audience. So I think that ministers are beginning to say to number 10 and to Boris, mm. rein it in. And I think the needless row hopefully will, will sort of blow over. Uh, Rachel, it's not totally all rosy, though. The, the no. Tories are fighting the media on many fronts. Yeah, I mean, we've just seen today there's a launch of a consultation on the criminalisation of non-payment of... Uh, the BBC's licence fee. So um, sort of taking away that revenue could was just like, a, it's basically a full frontal assault on the BBC and that this is the politics which is the background to all of this. And I wonder if there's some element of the government kind of trying to cast itself as this radical reforming people's government against the elitist media that kind of, you know, lies all the time and these kinds of things. It's, you know, not a lot of people like journalists. It's like, you know, I think a lot of people who are in journalism don't always see that but it's true um and i just think that's the that's the, the that's the political background is this they actually want to make big changes to our media landscape and a lot of this speaks to the us uk trade deal um the the us chamber of commerce for example has said that they kind of see the bbc as an anachronism and that they want no culture carve out whatsoever they don't want any special treatment for the bbc so there's a some big policy in there as well yeah interesting and I mean I've had a few people mention to me like the, the, the they can't seem to get out of campaign mode number 10 is basically run by vote leave now mm. and uh, they don't really know what to do now they don't have to campaign is there an element of that going on there is an element of it's, yeah. it's still attack mode and um, and certainly when it comes to Dominic Cummings and his communications chief Lee Kane whose name has been in the public prints quite prominently this week which is the last thing you want to do as a communications director have you become the story um, yeah I think there's a, there's a sense that actually there is still in attack mode but that's why it's bonkers because there's no need for it I mean you could understand why you would do it in an election campaign you want to control your message ruthlessly I mean, admittedly, it's, you know, it's not the right thing to do, but if you don't want you to go before Andrew Neil and you do want your opponents to, then it kind of makes sense to drop out at the last minute. I can understand the total cynicism of that. But when you're in government, it seems so pointless. Um, but I think, like, like I say, I think they're beginning to wake up to that. The, the message now is surely to hold on to all those Northern Red or Word Wall seats. How are you going to do that? Through the media. I yeah. mean, and surely they need papers like The Mirror, who were one of the... Yeah, I mean, the Mirror's not going to do them any favours, but at least getting their message across. Yeah. And background briefings are really important for that kind of thing. What do you really think? 
I mean, this the, the, we were talking earlier about Brexit. You know, the, David Frost, the government's uh, special advisor, former civil servant, um, who is the Sherpa, lead Sherpa on Brexit, was giving this briefing, the, the one that we all walked out of. You know, what happened? Because he didn't give the briefing. He's sitting there high and dry waiting for a briefing to happen that doesn't happen. Mm. He must have felt quite embarrassed. I'm carving out a p part of my important day he here. He was prepared for it, He was right? totally prepared, sitting down, and no one appeared. And that kind of thing is ultimately quite damaging. But also, imagine if he had given the briefing to everybody, we would have had a much clearer from the horse's mouth estimate of the things we've just been talking about with Anand, all this cru crucial, important detail. And if that's in the mirror and it's informed, what's, what's wrong with it? Or Huff Post. But the BBC thing, I think, is really telling because there's a read across from Brexit. Mm. Brexit, the Tory party, you can argue, had a tiny, tiny minority view that what used to be known as better off out, which William Hague, I remember, tried ruthlessly to drill out of the Tory party because it seemed as being this weird fringe, took over the Tory party. The same on the BBC. There was a tiny, tiny, tiny fringe of people who really hate the BBC it's and the, the Tory party. It's the people, though, isn't it? Um, sometimes, sometimes not. Um, Des Swain, for example, is not one of those people. Um, He's virulently in favour of the BBC, but virulently against Brussels. Um, um, but there is a tiny fringe, and always has been, of the BBC's the enemy, it's statist, it's corporate, and, and how dare they. But they seem to now have quite a lot of influence in the Tory party. And I think Johnson's playing with fire because I think he knows in, in his own heart that actually this is an amazing institution, unique institution. And what we're doing, risking it by um, undermining it with the licence fee. I suspect what will happen is that... He'll say, thus far, no further. In other words, they will decriminalise the licence fee. And then he'll sort of use that as a sort of a weapon to keep the BBC in line, but won't do anything more fundamental than that. That might be what happens. I, I don't know. I was going to say, although the BBC didn't have the best general election campaign, they had a lot of criticism, some of it perhaps a little bit justified, um, didn't have the best election campaign, I kind of think they're, they're also still really, really trusted, particularly in red ball seats. You know, there's no anti-BBC feeling mm. coming up from grassroots in those areas i just i also think if you want to do things like people's pmqs and kind of try to broadcast directly i think that kind of is a little bit arrogant that you think that the public will automatically not trust the bbc but trust you directly as a politician who are also not very trusted or liked by people generally but the first time i ever witnessed the anti -B real genuine anti-bbc feeling guess where it was it was in Ooh. Swansea at a Jeremy Corbyn rally in 2016. Yeah. Yeah. And I could not believe it. There were generally educated people, teachers, social workers, and I was talking to them in the queue. Yeah, BBC Wales are there. We don't like them. They're, they're anti-Jeremy. I, I said, are you serious? And, and they were saying, you know, you, you just can't. This is you know, total propaganda of the BBC. And everyone around them agreed. I thought, whoa, something yeah. has happened here. I mean, it's dangerous. Both big parties have an axe to grind with what they portray as the mainstream media. Uh, and that's not healthy, I don't think, particularly. Well, I should add in parentheses, I've always seen you as rather outer lobby, Paul. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> which reminds me of a great well, gag. Which, <laughs> it reminds me of a great gag. Well, not a gag, but a great anecdote, which is when I went to, to first join the lobby as a reporter, um, there was a lovely woman who was the, the cleaner at my former local paper, and she said, hey, Paul, I hear you're off to the lobby. And uh, she said, I, I didn't think you were ever going to work in hotels. <laughs> and she genuinely oh. thought the lobby was I'd given up journalism and I was going to work in a hotel. Well, there was that confusion, wasn't there? But as people were in the lobby of number 10 being told yeah. who were the inner out, well, I mean, that, that all got very that was, yeah. bizarre. <laughs> And then uh, MPs were calling us lobbyists in the chamber yeah, as well during the urgent question. It was all very. I mean, what have you made of it as an outsider? Uh, I, I mean, 
I, I think the government is playing this badly. Uh, on the other hand, I see, you know, I, I've watched with a degree of sympathy as journalists have tried to figure out, A, that this is important, but B, if you talk about it, it looks, it looks incredibly self-indulgent. So it's yeah. a very, very difficult line to tread. Mm. Uh, I'm delighted that Paul says the government seems to be rowing back on this. I wonder what we don't know about this government yet is how much of this is talk. That is to say, we're going to, you know, we talk a good game on everything from fighting the BBC to, you know, fighting judges over sentencing of suspected terrorists. But actually, when push comes to shove, we just lose and move on to the next fight we're going to have rhetorically. So we don't know how much is talk and how much is action. Remember, Cameron had that review into the BBC mm. and the lawyer came back and said, actually, this is the best funding model. Yeah, it was a really, yeah. really good review and it was based on evidence. But you make a really good point. There's a lot of talk and, and, and danger for Johnson is it, if you raise all these expectations of all your fervent admirers and you and the, these fringe groups, and you then disappoint them. What happens over time? I mean, you know, the he's whole idea it, we're going to... He's gonna... done it loads, though, hasn't he? DUP... Well, he got away with DUP. DUP are a fringe group now. He, he got... I'm not... <laughs> no, he got away with the DUP, but... <laughs> I only have 10 MPs. <laughs> I think over time... I mean, for example, he's, he's, he's floated this idea of tearing up the whole of Whitehall. We'll yeah. get to see, won't we, whether or not there is some truth in that. It may be, there may not. But... If, if, why float that idea and then not follow it through? But this links to the thing that exercises my colleague Jill Rutter, which is the unattributed number 10 briefings, is there's a bigger picture here, isn't there, that the media need to decide how to handle this number 10. And it might require a little bit of fleet-footedness because if these unattributed briefings from number 10 were all about stuff we're going to do. And, of course, if it didn't happen or if it hadn't happened differently, it was like, well, that wasn't the Prime Minister. And those, you know... There is an element of that, that's for sure. I mean... You know, floating ideas in a Sunday paper is often the way they do it. Yeah. And the famous one was Dominic Cummings. Dominic Cummings, of course, when he's done this before, he was at the DFE. Everyone forgets he targeted the education correspondents, divided and ruled them. And, you know, he picked off Chris Cook on the FT, who was the education correspondent, because he wrote things that Michael Gove didn't like and exposed things. And he would then drop a story to the Sunday Times uh, about, we're going to scrap A-levels. And then within a week, people in Whitehall saying, that's bananas, you can't scrap A-levels, yeah. what are you doing? Yeah. And they had to row back. And it, it, I get the feeling we're getting a bit of that again. But that's the problem. If you float something, then you drop it. You really lack credibility. Uh, and it brings us to the fundamental point about this government, which, again, I wrote about last week. Does he have a plan for anything? Yeah. I get the feeling they don't have a plan for much. If there is some cunning plan, they're, bl they're bloody hiding it quite well. I mean, whether it's Brexit or anything else, social care is another classic. Where is the plan? And it's Boris Johnson all over again, winning a victory as in, as in City Hall and not knowing what to do when you've got the victory. And I think there's a real danger of that here. Why hasn't Jeremy Corbyn, to my knowledge at least, at PMQ said, you know that plan you said you had for social care? Do you care to reveal it now? Yeah, we're still waiting. Yeah. Yeah, well, last night the Tories caused a minor stir with an advert featuring an interview with a voter from Bolton who backed the party for the first time in December's election. It was yet more evidence of how determined Boris Johnson is to hang on to leave voters who broke Labour's red wall and put the Tories back in government. Labour's Jess Phillips thinks the distraction of her own party's leadership contest is allowing the Prime Minister to define the narrative. Here she is. What often happens when the Labour Party has a leadership election is that we lose the rhetoric. So if you think that when Ed Miliband became the leader, mm. while we're off walking around the country and going to these hustings and doing all that, the rhetoric about, you know, the false rhetoric about how Labour was to blame for literally mm. the global recession mm. took hold mm. and we never caught that back. And what is happening currently is that Boris Johnson is making the argument as if his election as the Prime Minister this time is a completely new era. Uh, Paul, will Labour be worried by this advert? It's quite effective. I'd be really worried. When I saw it, I thought, wow, 
blimey, you know, that's like a lot of people in my family. <laughs> uh, you know, it's obvious. There's a guy, he's got no agenda. Just an ordinary bloke from Bolton. Um, key seat. I mean, Bolton, by the way, has always been one of those marginals that Tories have always wanted to win. Mm. Um, uh, and But, boy, they're winning the big numbers there now. And the most worrying thing of all, and I think, um, who was it, Lewis Baston overnight tweeted some, some links to some research he's done on this, is the most worrying thing of all is, is this a really, instead of a one-off blip election, is this part of a long-term trend? Yeah. And that would terrify... If I was in the Labour Party, I'd be terrified by that. It's, in other words, since 2010, you know, successive elections, you've seen that vote grow and, and, and Labour's voters get increasingly disillusioned. Now, there is an element where some of them stay at home, which I'd, I'd like to see more research on that. How many Labour voters stayed at home rather than switch to the Tories? What's the proportions? But I'd be really worried about that. If you're Blair, and I remember seeing Blair after the election do, do his big speech uh, after the terrible defeat in, in December, and he basically said, look, yeah, go figure. What's the difference? 97, 2001, 2005, look at the massive majorities I had. And it's no coincidence, 2010, it went off a cliff, uh, or started to drift, should we say, and it went off a cliff later. And that's his argument, which is the only way these places like Lee Roller's seat in, in, in uh, Derbyshire, the only time those seats actually still have big majorities was under Blair, because it wasn't seen as a Labour government. It was seen as something more than that. And I think that's the problem with the Labour Party now. It doesn't want to be seen as anything more than a Labour government. I, I, think, yeah. I think it is long-term. Uh, and actually, there was, you know, New Labour lost voters as well, even though it was still getting big majorities. So let's not lose sight of yeah, that. But true. maybe they're the ones who just stopped voting. Yeah. And then they might have discovered UKIP post-2004 yeah, yeah. or whatever. So I think it is very long-term, which also means... And I noticed a lot of Corbyn outriders on Twitter saying, well, it's, you know, because they mentioned Brexit in the video, saying it was down to Brexit. No, I mean, there are several things about this. A, it's longer term. B, you actually need to have a leader that someone wants to chat to and shake the hand of. And that... For me, I, I just thought it was a remarkably powerful video yeah. in all sorts of ways, actually. And the, the, there was a genuine warmth yeah, between exactly. the two of them that, you know, if you imagine Corbyn doing that, I think the dynamics would have been very, very different. Uh, and, yeah, I think Jess is absolutely right. While, while Labour's doing this sort of never-ending naval gaze uh, of its leadership election, the Tories are setting the agenda and doing it relatively effectively. Is there a risk, though? Is there one risk in this for the Tories? That, uh, is Johnson's Brexit vision compatible with hanging on to those seats? Well, we've done some, we've done some work on this, and what, what you find is that in these red wall seats, they have higher-than-average levels of manufacturing, uh, for instance, and manufacturing is going to suffer as a result of the kind of deal we're going to get because, for instance, the car industry... Uh, the millions of parts that cross the channel sort of daily are going to be slowed up. They might be subjected to tariffs, though that's less likely. And it makes those business models sort of harder to maintain. So think about the West Midlands and the uh, tens of thousands of jobs linked to the automobile industry. We don't know what's going to happen. But what I would say is I mean, there's several things about the car industry, uh, and you should have my colleague David Bailey on sometime who knows everything there is to know about cars and yeah, the West should. Midlands. But what he's, there's several things about it. One... It's quite a precarious industry anyway, and the combination of a slowdown in China mm. and the diesel problem and the fact that you can probably make cars cheaper elsewhere than here means that its future isn't, wouldn't be rosy even yeah. without Brexit, quite possibly. And secondly, the Brexit effect won't be instantaneous because a lot of sunk costs. If you've built a car factory here, you don't close it down on the 1st of January. You try and run it down, maybe get rid of this model. But there will be impacts. There will be job losses. It might not be as clear-cut 
in terms of the link to Brexit as many Remainers seem to think or hope. And so it'll be harder to spin that narrative. I think if three years down the line the car industry starts shedding jobs, saying, well, that's because of Brexit, it isn't as easy politically as some people seem to assume it will be. Yeah, and Rachel, does, did Labour have a problem opposing the government on Brexit while trying to win back these levers? Uh, yes, <laughs> a massive one. Yeah. Um, I think, but I think, how should they negotiate that? I think as Anand was touching on, though, um, I think the election was also, I think one of the reasons, main reasons they lost was Jeremy Corbyn rather than Brexit. I think when you look at some of those seats, uh, the Conservative vote didn't actually even go up. It's just that Labour's splintered off in several different directions. Um, I, I guess free movement's kind of key to how they deal with Brexit. I think. Rebecca Long-Bailey's kind of said it should be based on values, not targets, whether they're back free movement. Um, Lisa Nandy's positive about it. Keir Starman's positive about it. And that might sound like it's kind of political suicide, but if you look at what might happen to the economy in the next mm. few years and you're still arguing to um, you know, shut people out of the country, I think that's, it becomes an easier argument, argument perhaps for them. But it, it's, it's difficult to say what they should do because, like you say, the government doesn't seem to have much of a plan itself at the moment. So it's hard to say what strategy they actually should take at the minute. And you've been meeting some of the North Eastern Tories, the new Tory MPs up there. I mean, they're central in this debate. What, what, what sort of stuff are they saying? Um, well, it's interesting. I was actually uh, speaking to Deanna Davison uh, last week and she was saying that they've all the new Tories up in that area have joined the ERG, um, but they all kind of went in and they were joking between themselves saying, even if you add up all of our ages, we're still the youngest person in the room. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they were kind of, um, they kind of will start to ally themselves more closely with the blue collar conservative group. Um, and this is another divide, which I think Labour is going to really struggle with. It's kind of um, where they are on being socially liberal, liberal and socially conservative, and the, all the sort of research yeah. so far would suggest they need to win over socially conservative voters. And God, if you, I mean, if I were a Tory prime minister now, I would just be sort of prodding that social values thing over and over yeah. again yeah. because you know the Tory coalition is pretty united on values terms now because they've become the sort of leave coalition whereas Labour is, you, should, you could, you know, Labour could become the Democrats very, very easily if, for instance, you do your constitutional review and say which group should have protected rights. You know, you could imagine Labour just disappearing down a values plug hole on that. Yeah. And law and order is another yeah. classic. I mean, yeah. Labour has been completely silent on law and order for the last five years, so let's be honest. Yeah. I mean, Diana but hasn't lifted a finger to try and push that agenda. Uh, and it's been an open goal. Point it's of order. Go on. 2017 election, they did quite a good job on police cuts. Yeah, but that's cuts. That's not law and yeah. order. That's a different issue. That's easy. I mean, any, any fool could do that. I mean, my kids could do that. Um, <laughs> Your kids are very clever, though. But, uh, <laughs> but the, the, the point is... Like. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Louise Haig, to a great credit, shadow policing minister, who I suspect will be in the shadow cabinet, whoever gets a victory... Um, has actually been pretty good at trying to carve out what Labour used to be good at under Blair, which was, we're the copper's friend. You know, we're interested in your rights, your wages, um, uh, and same for police officers. And, but also, we're on the side of, you know, it's about cracking down on crime as well as the causes of crime. And we, we think we've got to send out some signals that are in tune with people's values, you know, Labour values. And I think 
Johnson will definitely try and drive a new wedge on crime and law and order. You're already seeing over terror mm. and Labour's having yeah. to slowly work out, oh, damn shit, mm. maybe we, we shouldn't be saying that civil liberties are really important right now when a guy's slashing people in the streets because he's out on automatic yeah. licence. And all right, it's an easy hit for the Tories, but it's a valid hit that automaticity came under Labour. Um, and, you know, if, you've got, if you're an ordinary Labour voter, what are you hearing from Labour? And I think the problem is Keir Starmer... As, as a lawyer, as a DPP chap, you know, he knows a lot of the, the liberal metropolitan elite arguments for civil liberties. He gets them, probably feels them in his bones. But there is a part of it, Keir Starmer, that is the DPP that cracked down on crime. And maybe, maybe Labour's got a chance through him to actually resurrect that issue again and, and raise the profile of actually Labour's mm. not a soft touch. I mean, that, if, if I were him, that's what I'd be doing. I'd be talking about my history, cracking down on drug gangs and everything else, um, you know, and on terror. Yeah, interesting. Right, let's do the quiz. Yay! Uh, he's always good at this, uh, isn't he, Anand? In, in a week where <laughs> Shadow... If it was points, he'd always win. But... <laughs> well, in a week where Shadow Culture Secretary Tracy Brabin uh, found herself mired in a ridiculous row about her off-the-shoulder top that she wore in the Commons, this week's edition is all about sartorial controversy in Parliament. Oh, good oh good. This. good. <laughs> good. He lies. Trivia, we love uh, trivia. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in June 2017... John Burko ruled that MPs no longer had to wear ties in the Commons. But which MP's decision to go tieless sparked the ruling? Oh, no, it's a Tory. I'm sure it's a Tory, backbench Tory. Was it Tim Yo? No. Tim Yo. 2017. No, Tim Yo definitely was the first, by the way. Can I just say he was oh, right, a trailblazer? Okay. Ages ago, and going no tie and didn't get. Recommended. I think answer on the card, and it's clearly not Tim Yo uh, that you've got written down there. Um, so no points. So far. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I have no, I have no earthly clue. Ryan, no. Do you want to have a guess? I don't even feel bad for not knowing. Is it? Is it? Can you tell us the party? Uh, Lib Dem. Ah. And uh, Ed Davey. You can't have any points because you had one bad guess. You, and you said three, it's definitely it a like, Tory. How many answers you want? Six Five. <laughs> Tim Perrin? No, oh, it's, it's Tom Brake. Tom Brake, really? Um, yeah, so Tory MP Peter Bone got up and complained that Brake was not wearing a tie, and Berko said, you, "You just don't need to wear a tie." Look up Tim Yo. And then, Google listeners, Google Tim Yo and, and Ty and Commons. This we're is funny. Having, we're not having VAR. <laughs> <laughs> when this when this happened, half the lobby ripped their ties off and ran into the chamber <laughs> to see what it was like to stand in there without a tie because we're all very sad. Yeah. Uh, right. <laughs> shouting freedom. <laughs> not, well, not quite. <laughs> um, which MP was told off by Burko for wearing a Peruvian-style multicoloured woolly hat? In the Commons, Peter Bone. Yes, correct. Referred See what back I did to your there. Last answer, yeah. yeah. Right, Why did you do four. that? I think it was for a charity. Oh, yes, right. the charity Crazy Hats. Yeah, it's Wellingborough constituency. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Shall we just go get a coffee? Well, <laughs> <laughs> Paul's one <laughs> one nil nil ahead. Uh, Green MP Caroline Lucas was rebuked in 2013 for wearing a T-shirt with a slogan on it. But what was the slogan? Ooh. This is what a feminist looks like. No. Oh. oh, was that the time of the Oxfam thing? Because they were doing a climate thing. Is it about coal? Is it about coal? No. Wind power? Oh. God knows. You'll kick yourselves when I tell you. Uh, we will kick ourselves. Because you'll remember it. Give us a clue, Arge. It's to do with the media. Oh. Uh, Looks like no. I'm not going to be kicking myself. Still. <laughs> no, yeah, no idea. No more page three. 
Oh, the Westminster Hall debate. Good. She was told off by the chair for wearing a T-shirt with no more pastry. Um, ultimately, the campaign was, of course, successful. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, that's all we have time for this week. Thank you to my guests for joining me, and make sure you subscribe to Commons People on all the usual channels so you can catch us every Thursday. And be sure to get your daily dose of the latest politics news by signing up to the Warzone newsletter at bit.ly forward slash the hyphen war hyphen zone or follow the link in the episode notes. We'll just leave you with Tory MP Mark Francois revealing his plans for Brexit night. Well, I've kindly been invited to several uh, uh, parties this evening, so I'll be, I'll be dividing my, my time. And then uh, I've decided I'm not going to go to bed tonight because this is a unique occasion. I'm going to stay up and watch the sunrise over a free country. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.